I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another day on History Hack. It's going to be a good day today, Zach, because one of our favourite people is here. He's basically History Hack's China correspondent now, isn't he? He absolutely is. This one came up, in fact, we barely finished recording with this guy when he said, I've got this concept for you. We both went, we're having that. (laughs) (laughs) No arguments. Nobody else is getting involved. We're being selfish. We're having it. Yeah. All the other folks who come in and, and help us with presenting. Yeah, we are hosting this one. Screw all of you. It's mine and Zach's. Who is it? Yeah. So we have Jonathan Clements with us. He's been on History Hack, I don't even know how many times, to be honest with you. He's been discussing Chinese food with us, Confucius, Emperor Wu, Kublai Khan. I got very excited about Marco Polo the last time he was on. Kept trying to ask the Marco Polo question. You can to shut me up and go, Wait, Zach, it comes later in the uh, in the episode. But today he's going to talk to us about something a little bit different. Let me set the scene for you. So the year is 4,341. Yes, you heard me right, 4,341. Invaders ransacked the Celestial Empire and placed a child on the dragon throne. This is all real, people. I'm not making this up. I'm not tripping, I promise. The last remnants of the dynasty of brightness swore to fight them to the death. Their allies were alien creatures with the noses of eagles and the eyes of cats and giant black-skinned devils from beyond the sea, still promising you that I'm not tripping. Their soldiers were former smugglers led by the master of the seas, likely to have been the richest man in the world. But when the master of the seas switched side, his son would burn his scholar's robes and cast aside his own name to become the embodiment of loyalty. He was ennobled at 21, the leader of the resistance at 22, and by the age of 30, he had been made a prince. He also became a god, not once, but twice. None of this is science fiction. This is history. That is a summary of the book Coxinger and the Fall of the Ming Dynasty by our very own Jonathan Clements. And it's an unbelievable story of the man who led the Ming resistance to the Manchu invaders in the 17th century. His mother was a samurai, his father was a pirate, and he is still worshipped in Taiwan as a god and paragon of patriotism and is a people's hero in communist China. So we're calling this one the Pirate King of Taiwan. Jonathan, so good to have you back. We've been having a laugh about various things about why publishers are gits. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm fine, and my publishers are not gits. Uh, The the ones that I was slagging off to you before we started are are, are long gone in in, in both Alex's and my rearview mirror, so we don't have to worry anymore. Most definitely. We love the the new ones. We love love all of our current publishers. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. Well done. Nice little caveat put in there. How are you? I'm fine. Just have my, as I was saying, I've just had my Irish PLR money. So that's four euros I'll be able to spend on. Well, you on... live in Scandinavia. So what's that? A half a pint? That's, if, if I'm lucky, it's, it's, a, it's a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Oh, it's why we do what we do for the massive amounts of cash that we don't earn. Right. This Pirate King, you've mm-hmm. got to be having a laugh, right? This sounds like you just made it up, like you're punking us because we know nothing about Chinese history. And also as well, I'm going to ask this on behalf of all the listeners. What are you talking about with the year 4341? Well, 
Firstly, uh, yeah, it is kind of an unlikely story. I understand that. And when I, and it was the first history book I actually wrote a long time ago. And so uh, I had to do quite an, an extensive uh, pitch document for it. I couldn't just write it on the back of a beer mat and everyone go, hey, that sounds cool. Um, and so I wrote quite an extensive pitch for it. And I gave it to my agent, uh, who is still my agent, Fox and Howard. And, uh, and she said, uh, I don't handle fiction, you idiot. And, and I said, no, no, this is absolutely true. Um, there was, uh, and China was invaded in, in 1644 uh, by the Manchus, and, and the Ming resistance was this kind of huge endeavor led by a man whose, um, whose father was a, a smuggler and whose, whose mother was a samurai. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that, you know, we, we kind of did to have fun with it is to, is to point out just how like Game of Thrones the whole bloody thing sounds. Um, not the least the fact that when we discuss as Anglophone historians, the way that uh, history works internationally across a very broad period of time, we try and impose some of our own concepts on them, like the idea that the year is 1644. Well, very few people involved in the Manchu invasion of China felt that way. Uh, I mean, when the uh, and the book actually begins uh, with the, the the ministers of the of the Ming Emperor arriving on New Year's Day, 1644, and going to see the Emperor in his throne room and finding him weeping because he's realised there's no money left. To, to defend the empire. But as far as they're concerned, it really has been more than 4,300 years since the earliest dynasties in China. Uh, you know, they're counting on an entirely different timescale. Um, and so, you know, the Dutch and the British who were showing up later on saying, oh, it's been 1644 years since, you know, Jesus. None of the Chinese cared about that. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the fun points you can make when you're, you're talking about history that's kind of outside the English world. It, it, it's something, it's a very common issue with, uh, with Muslim studies as well. Like if you're talking about Islamic history, using Christian dating for it is often quite um, misleading. And sometimes you miss some of the big anniversaries because it, it, it might be the year 500 in, in Islam, but it, it'll be something, you know, much less... Um, commemorative in uh, in Christian dating. I love the concept that you go to a Chinese person. Oh, it's sixteen forty four, uh, based on when Jesus is born, and they would go, "Who's Jesus?" Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, they would then say, "Yes, I'm glad you asked me that, Chinaman." And here's the whole Bible and a thing to read and stuff that you really didn't want anything to do with. Yeah, <laughs> quite. Let me convert you. Yes, <laughs> the i the idea of dating. Uh, Chinese history um, from the first legendary emperors, from the Yellow Emperor, is actually something that came about in the 19th century as part of the Republican movement um, as an attempt to be kind of one up on, on Christianity. Um, there were several different dating systems the Chinese tried. One of them was actually to date things from the time of Confucius, which is 500 years ahead of, of, um, of Jesus. So, you know, you'd say, oh, the year is uh, 1910. You go, no, it's not. It's 2410, actually, because Chinese dating's a little bit better than yours. And, and so dating from the time of the Yellow Emperor was the ultimate slap um, to deliver um, to, to foreign missionaries to say this is really how long our culture has been rolling. Um, but it didn't catch on, sadly. I do feel there's a whole episode to be done on why missionaries might be the 19th century equivalent of mansplainers, but we'll... we'll uh... <laughs> oh, that would be wonderful. I'm so glad you asked me that. Oh, hang on, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but let's move things back to our pirate king. So the name Coxinger, firstly, there's a spelling thing there, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But where does it come from? Um, well, the thing is, is that when the Manchus invaded, uh, the Ming uh, dynasty fell. Um, and so, so technically, we, we date the Qing dynasty, the Manchus dynasty, from 1644. But actually, there was a resistance that went on for about 20 years uh, until they were finally crushed. And so uh, during that time, there was this kind of revolving door of pretenders, you know, a member of the Ming imperial family. So the, the, the last true Ming emperor was actually dead, hanging from a tree when the Manchus walked into Beijing. But his cousins and his brothers and his, you know, his uncle's friends and you know, that they were various different pretenders uh, for, for the years that followed. And some of them were, you know, were executed quickly and dealt with. And, and some of them, you know, had a, had a, a good run. And, and one of them in particular was a guy called Long Wu, the Long Wu Emperor, um, who was a distant cousin of the, la of the last Ming Emperor. And he made it to the deep south of China. He made it to Fujian where there was a very powerful Chinese admiral called Zhang Jilong, who we'll talk about later on, uh, who, who kind of, it was like his personal fiefdom. And so he was in a safe place. 
And it was a bit like the um, the tarmac nobility of the last Italian king. You know, it, it, this guy's a pretender. He's got nothing to hand out except titles. So he starts making everybody around him a duke. Um, and uh, he's very grateful to this admiral for looking after him and for, you know, giving him some clean clothes and a bath and everything. And, and this admiral's son is there, a guy called Zheng Sen, uh, who's this very impressionable young boy just into his 20s. And, and he says, um, you can have the imperial surname. I will make you. Uh, a member of the Ming royal family by decree. And this, and this pretender, Long Wu, doesn't have any kids of his own. And so he's effectively saying to his protector's son, I'm kind of adopting you. I mean, if, if, if this works, who knows where it might lead? You could be a prince or anything. And so, and so Zheng Sen was renamed Zheng Chenggong, uh, which means serious achievement. But he also carried the royal surname. And so he was known thereafter as the knight of the royal surname. Guo Xingye, which in uh, the local dialect is Goxingya, and so he was known as Coxinger uh, to the Dutch and to the uh, and to the um, and to the English, and he was known as Coxenya uh, uh, to the Japanese. He was known as Quisingus uh, to the Jesuits, who insist on writing everything in Latin. So the Jesuits gave him a, uh, uh, his name began with a Q, but among the Chinese, among the Dutch and the English, there was this argument whether it should begin with a C or a K. And, and when I wrote my book, uh, I, I used a C. Um, but over the last 10 years or so in particular, the, the K usage has become much more prominent um, uh, among historians uh, because it's the one that's favoured in Taiwan. And Taiwan is the centre of, of most of the Coxinger studies that you see. So you'll see it written with a C or a K and then either is fine. Right. Why is this guy not the most famous character in Chinese history? Because I, is there a better story out there? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I, I love this one. But the, the problem with Koxinger is that he's claimed by multiple places. He's claimed by okay. multiple territories. So, for example, I first kind of fell in love with this story when I was an undergraduate. I was studying Chinese and Japanese, and I realized the stories I was reading in Chinese about this guy called uh, Guo Xingye and the stories I was reading in Japanese about Koxinger were about the same person. But they have very different perspectives on it. And so the, the, the Japanese see him as a samurai son who went to China and kicked ass and then conquered Taiwan. Um, and so politically, this became a very useful thing for the Japanese. In 1895, when they took over Taiwan, the first thing the governor did is go to the temple of Koxinger to pray and give thanks because Koxinger is like Japanese and Taiwan's become returned to Japan. This is not a story that anyone wants told today. Similarly, He's a hero in China. He's a people's hero in China because he threw the Dutch out of Taiwan. In ta on Taiwan itself, he is a people's hero because he brought the Chinese to Taiwan. But the Aborigines don't feel that way. Uh, they're not very keen on him because he brought the Chinese to Taiwan. So you have all these. And, and that's before we get to the Chinese and the Dutch and what they thought of him. And so uh, his story is kind of fragmented. It's been partitioned. It, it's not one of these stories where you only need to speak one language to be able to read the various sources. And so that kind of limits what people say about him. And also because it's so heavily politicized, because Taiwan and China are at odds even now, um, because um, the Japanese and the Chinese still have trouble getting on even now, Everyone is throwing it, and the, the, the stories that are told, every story I tell you will have a counterpoint from a different country. So if I tell you, oh, he was a great Japanese hero, some Chinese person will be, will be shouting at their, at their television right now, shouting, no, he wasn't a Chinese, he, he wasn't a Japanese hero, he was a Chinese hero. And so every story about him and his family um, is subject to multiple confusions and multi multiple contentions, uh, which makes it very difficult to extract an actual narrative, a, a reasonable, uh, as we might say, mode of implotment out of the various stories that you're told about. And I think that tends to confuse things. So you were talking about this whole kind of process of adoption and so on. What do we know about his his actual family, his actual parents. His actual parents. Okay, well, his actual parents are two great historical characters in their own right. One of them is Zheng Zhilong, uh, Zheng the Dragon, uh, who was his dad, uh, who was the admiral that I mentioned. But he didn't start off as an admiral. Um, he was born in 1604 in Fujian uh, to a rather low-ranking government accountant. He didn't come from a particularly special family. Um, but he had to leave home in a hurry over an incident. Uh, I mean, the stories are people saw his father chasing him through the streets with a stick. 
Um, the uh, the story that um, is most uh, popular is that he was caught banging his stepmother. Um, and this is an issue that we're going to return to later on, um, because this is a relatively common issue uh, in traditional China. Because if you have polygamy as, a, as an accepted norm, and if you have a rich old guy whose eldest wife, let's say, is in her 50s, his youngest concubine is probably a teenager and of about the same age as his eldest son. And so this kind of Romeo and Juliet forbidden love between someone who is technically your stepmother um, and, and oneself is not unknown and it is listed among the Confucian crimes. So uh, that supposedly is what happened to, uh, uh, to Zheng Zhilong. And he went on, on the run before he could get into much more trouble. He ended up in Macau, where he said, yeah, OK, I'm a Christian. That'll do. Um, and changed his name to Nicholas Iquan um, and became uh, an associate of the Portuguese, learned Portuguese, became an interpreter for the Portuguese in their dealings with the Dutch, and then fell in with a man called Li Dan, or Captain China, who was a smuggler. Uh, there's a huge network uh, down in Southeast Asia uh, for, for moving goods around, um, particularly as the samurai age comes to an end in Japan and Japan shuts itself off to the outside world. It turns out that there is a back door into Japan if you know the right people, if you know the right things. And so uh, Nicholas Iquan, as we all now call him, becomes one of the people involved in this illegal trade uh, dealing with the Japanese uh, because you have the Ryukyu Islands, which stretch from Japan all the way down to Taiwan. And in China, you're not allowed to travel uh, off in a fishing boat with more than two days supplies of food and water to stop you from traveling too far. But if you're a local in Fujian, you know you can sail across the Taiwan Strait, resupply in Taiwan, and then head up the Ryukyu Islands. And when you get to Japan, the Japanese say, no one's coming in unless they're Japanese. And you go, oh, I'm a Ryukyu Islander. I'm one of you. And they go, oh, OK, what have you got? Chinese silk. Fantastic. Massive deal done. You then sail back down to Taiwan and pop back into Fujian and say, oh, no, I'm not Japanese. I'm Chinese. Remember me? I left in a fishing boat a while ago. And you just keep doing this. And there's this huge trade empire. There's, there's all kinds of things the Japanese desperately need. They've killed all the deer in Japan, but they need deer hide for samurai armor. So Taiwan is this fantastic um, place to get hold of this. So there's camphor trade and there's iron goods and there's silk and it's all being uh, you know, thrown around. And Nicholas Iquan becomes the head of this illegal smuggling operation and causes serious trouble for uh, the Chinese until eventually in 1628-ish, they say, we can't stop you being this incredibly rich millionaire gangster, but we can make you an admiral and then you'll be our incredibly rich secret millionaire gangster. And so he then becomes uh, an admiral in the, in the Ming Chinese fleet. And then the next time there is some kind of gang war going on between these various smugglers, he represents the Chinese government and goes in to kill everybody. So as far as the Chinese are concerned, this is the best way of dealing with the problem of the smugglers is to make one of the smugglers one of you. So by the 1630s, Nicholas Iquan is one of the richest men in the world, possibly the richest man in the world at this point, because the Zheng trading empire, which he runs, where if you don't want to get molested by one of his battleships, you have to fly his flag and his flag will cost you a thousand quid or whatever it is and so and so everywhere you look there are flags of the Jung family and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're servants of them but it means they're all part of the same kind of racketeering as we should say now when he was young when he was a young man um still uh relatively poor uh he was in japan in hirado and he met a, a local girl uh, called Miss Tagawa. Nobody really knows what this, this woman's first name was. It's very rare for women's first names uh, to turn up in these kind of narratives. Her name may have been Matsu Tagawa, but no one's totally sure. Um, and, uh, when, and when he left Japan, she was pregnant. And the son that she gave birth to was Coxinger, uh, very famously born in a storm on a slab down by the beach in Hirado, uh, while a whale was being washed up on shore. The whale was kind of his spirit animal, one of those weird things about him. Um, and uh, he grew up in Japan, raised by this single mother who was herself from a, a low-ranking samurai status. Um, and then when he was a child, uh, the Japanese officially shut down to the rest of the world. And if you had 
three Japanese grandparents, you were allowed to stay. But if you had two Japanese grandparents, you had to leave. And so Koksinger actually left Japan and joined his father in Fujian. And his half-brother, Shichi Zayemon, uh, who was more Japanese than he was, stayed in Japan with his mother. Eventually, when Shichi Zayemon was bigger, uh, Miss Tagawa actually left Japan herself, sneaked out, went down to Fujian uh, to stay at um, uh, Nicholas Ikuan's fortress. What first attracted you to richest man in the world, gangster millionaire Nicholas Ikuan, uh, Mr. Garba? Um, and so they were kind of you know, reunited as a family. And she was one of Nicholas Ikuan's wives uh, in Anhai and was re reunited with her son then. So those were his parents, uh, a big kind of celebrity couple, as it were, of the Chinese gangster smuggling admiral world. This is brilliant. Uh, oh, I'm, we haven't started yet. No, it's amazing. Right. I understand noses of eagles and the eyes of cats, but who are the black skinned devils? Ah, oh, yes. You see, because just because it couldn't get surreal enough. Yeah. Um, the great thing about the 17th century, or one of the great things about the 17th century in terms of Chinese history, is it's one of these very rare melting pot cosmopolitan moments. So we have Portuguese uh, and Dutch traders turning up. We have Portuguese missionaries showing up. The Japanese described them as having the noses of eagles and the eyes of cats because these people do look very weird uh, to the locals. Not as weird, however, as Nicholas Iquan's personal entourage, because for reasons that defy explanation, he had uh, a posse of, <laughs> uh, of, of the biggest, nastiest looking warriors he could find called the Black Guard. And it turns out they were actually black. It turns out they were freed slaves. Uh, they were probably, some of them were probably Indians, but some of them were also uh, African slaves who had been with the Portuguese, who had, who had subsequently been either bought by Nicholas Iquan or freed or escaped and joined his pirate network. And so um, he actually had this entourage uh, called the Black Guard, who were like his, his most loyal protectors. Um, and in fact, there are, in fact, pictures of, of Coxinger later in life being guarded by this giant moor. Um, and uh, there was one story that said that uh, the, the Black Guard were all wiped out at the Battle of the Path of Pass of Misty Immortals in 1644, 1645. But actually, there is evidence of... Uh, the Black Guard being part of the Jung family entourage, um, even after the death of Coxinger. I mean, there were members of this posse. Some of them were used as, as hostage uh, exchanges during some of the sieges. Um, Coxinger's own grandson, when he was murdered, uh, was by the Black slaves barbarously strangled. So we know that there were some of them still alive, still working for uh, the Jung family um, as, as late as the 1680s. Um, uh, and one of them, only one of them is named, and that's a man called Captain Moore Ongkun. He's the only name that I have from the record. But, you know, I'm just fascinated by the presence of non-Chinese people in Chinese history anyway. Um, and so the, the fact that the Black Guard turned out to be actually African was even more fantastic. Indeed. So we've got Nicholas Ikwan. He's an admiral. He's serving the Ming government technically by this point in time yeah. but you've described him as sort of this billionaire gangster like a, you know almost an equivalent to the godfather so can they really trust this guy can they count on his loyalty in a word no no they can't count on his loyalty <laughs> surprise um i mean that that moment when coxinger gets his surname is a lovely uh kind of lull in history this moment when the Longwu Emperor, the so-called Longwu Emperor, this pretender to the throne, thinks he's on safe ground, thinks that this man, who's basically got the province of Fujian as his private fiefdom, is on his side, he's got his back. This is where the fight back begins in Fujian. You can see all the kind of Brexit-level promises that the, the, the Ming Dynasty is punting out at this point, and none of it is true, because the thing about the Manchus is, well, well, well firstly, none of it's true because, because Nicholas Iquan is an asshole. We've already established this that he may have a certain rakish charm if you're some Japanese girl on the dockside, but nevertheless, he's not the kind of guy you want running your fleet. Um, and similarly, um, so he's not that trustworthy to begin with. Uh, he's already switched sides once from pirate to Ming. It should come as no surprise at all that when the Manchus roll in, he says, 
if I join you, I can still be a duke, right? And I get to keep all my stuff. And they're like, yeah, fine, that'll be fine. He defects immediately, and a whole bunch of his his, his posse go with him. Um, that that shouldn't come as that much of a surprise. The thing that is really quite shocking about the Manchu invasion of China, however, is that this wasn't a particularly unique situation. And it's one of the great tragedies, but also one of the great interesting things about the Manchu invasion is that the Manchus rolled in saying the Ming have lost the mandate of heaven. The Ming dynasty is shit. They've, they've lost it. We are just the agents of fate at this point. So if you let us take over, life's going to go on as before. I mean, there might be a few changes to haircuts and stuff. And, you know, there'll be a garrison in each city and there might be some changes in the way that tax works out and everything. But, you know, the NHS will work really well. And um, no, that's not an actual promise made by the Manchus. But <laughs> before anyone comes in with the yeah, before, before anyone comes in and complains. But, but basically, you know, the, the Manchus say, listen, fate has decreed we're taking over. We are taking over. We are here to save China, not to destroy it. We're just going to be in charge now. If everyone's okay with that, we'll you know hand out some more honors and stuff. Everything's going to go on as before. If you don't like it, we're going to kill you. It's a um, pretty easy choice then, isn't it? Well, for many people, it was a very easy choice. You know, the Manchu army would roll into town, and the and the, they would send out the town would send out a delegation and go, okay, so all we have to do is have a different haircut and everything's fine. Okay, cool, just don't kill us. Everything's fine, and so. The speed of the Manchu advance is really quite shocking in Chinese history because it's it's kind of this rolling tidal wave that's bringing in all of these defectors as it goes. And so there are some Manchu victories where there are no Manchus present because actually it's Chinese turncoats waving a Manchu flag who are just doing it. The shocking thing is how many people do stand up to them. Uh, and the tragedy is not enough. When the Manchus invaded, they didn't expect to take all of China. They expected to stop at about the Yangtze, to stop you know, roughly where Shanghai is, split the country in half, because every previous barbarian regime that had got anywhere in China had basically stopped somewhere around there. The north of China for the barbarians, for, so for the nomads, I shouldn't really call them barbarians, that's a, a Chinese term that even the Chinese themselves won't use anymore. Um, so the north of China is relatively easy for them to take. The south of China, which is much more mountainous, um, much less, you know, uh, hospitable to horses, um, is is much harder to take. And so they thought, we'll stop at the Yangtze. That'll be fine. We'll just take the same area of land that was lost to, um, to the Jurchens and to the Jin. Uh, and they made it to the Yangtze so fast. So like, let's keep going. Let's see how much of this we can get. And so like the Mongols before them in the 13th century, they ended up taking the entire country. Um, and so uh, and Nicholas Iquan was one of these many, many uh, defectors who said, yeah, fine, whatever. It makes no difference to me who's sitting on the throne. As long as life goes on as before, I don't really care. And so, uh, and so he went over to them, uh, much to the disappointment, of course, of the long woo pretender who honestly thought that this guy was going to look after him. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Which is basically insane. Um, why did... Coxinga not switch sides along with the rest of his family. Yeah, so a couple of the Jung family did not switch sides, and, and Coxinga uh, was was one of them. He was the most prominent one, and I think there are three real reasons for this. Uh, one of them was that uh, we haven't really talked about Coxinga's life. Mm. Um, his father was this rakish, you know, godfather figure, uh, as it were, but. He bought his son the best education that money could buy. Coxinger was not raised like his dad. Coxinger went to the very best schools. He was a graduate of the Nanjing Academy. He was a Confucian scholar. He was incredibly well-read and cultured. And he was nothing like his dad. Um, and so the, diff the disparity between father and son is really very shocking. And it becomes more and more shocking as the years go by. And Nicholas Iquan is in Beijing writing these letters to Koxinger saying, you know, it's really that not easy. It's really not that hard to just 
say the Manchus are in charge and we can end all this trouble. And he's like, no, fuck you, dad. Um, um, often to that degree of, uh, of abruptness as well, some of the letters that Coxinger sends are really very racy and shouty and ranty, uh, which is something <laughs> we'll get to later on. Um, so one of them is, is, is the education that he had, is the upbringing that he had was that of being a millionaire's son uh, who had all the best education and who was inculcated with this loyalty to the Ming dynasty that he's made his dad an admiral. He didn't see his dad in his scrappy gangster days. He saw his dad as an admiral of the Ming fleet. And so he had a very different perspective on these things. And I think it's also important to, to bring back this tarmac nobility issue as well. He was at a very impressionable age when the Longwu pretender turns up and tells him he's been adopted. He was, I think, frankly, starstruck by the idea of the Ming dynasty and, 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 and deeply unimpressed with the idea that these Manchu invaders were going to you know, hang around for very long. And there aren't that many times in Chinese history when barbarian invaders uh, have, um, you know, have come and not gone away. More times than you would think, but nevertheless, um, it would be reasonable for him to assume, well, if we just, you know, get the forces together and, and whip up enough enthusiasm, we can probably beat this. So he had that kind of enthusiasm, this kind of starstruck enthusiasm for, uh, for the Ming dynasty, which he, and in fact, he even named his base uh, uh, Xining, Think Ming. Uh, he was, you know, very, very keen on the Ming dynasty. Um, but the real issue, I think, was that in the, the struggle, in the fight over um, China, Nicholas Iquan and some of the bigwigs of the Zheng family uh, defected to the other side. But the memo didn't reach Anhai, which is where his base was. And Anhai held out against the Manchu forces and it fell to them and was burned to the ground. And in the process, the Manchus uh, caused the death of Coxinger's mother. And if you want to get Freudian about it, uh, you know, this woman has raised him single handedly for much of his young life. She's come all the way to China, to Anhai, where the two of them have been this kind of little unit in, you know, surrounded by Chinese people. And uh, uh, when the Manchus cause her death and he finds out that his father has gone over to their side, that's when it kicks off. OK, so we've, we've reached a point where. Coxinger's mother's died. He's telling his dad to foxtrot Oscar. Yeah. So how do we then go from that to boiling river dragon? I explain that to me. <laughs> I love that this is just basically insanity. Don't you want to do the death of Coxinger's mother first? Yeah, you go. Give us all the gory <laughs> details on that. Okay, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll go oh, gory on that, yeah. Well, because Coxinger's mother... Uh, there, there are various different versions of this story because it depends on who you believe. I mean, there are people in Japan saying she was a princess. There are people in China saying she was a prostitute. Truth is, she's probably a relatively low-ranking samurai woman, but there's this fantastic... Uh, so one of the stories is, is that she committed suicide um, during the assault on the fortress in order to um, save herself from indignity. But there is this fantastic story about the Manchus laying siege to the castle, which is already on fire. And she shows up on the battlements with a sword in each hand, charges along, knifing these Manchus trying to get up the wall, loses one of her swords in one of the bodies as it falls off, stabs herself in the throat, silhouetted against the flames like an Andy McNabb novel, and then tumbles into the moat. Dead. That's the story and, I want. And the Manchus say, okay, so this is a Japanese bird, right? If that's what the women are like... Let's stay away from the men. <laughs> I want that version of the story. And, I don't know so, it's not and, credible. Yeah, and so this story, which is which is a very popular one in Japan, is, is said to explain why the Manchus never attacked Japan. Because it's like Mr. Tagawa was enough, and they weren't going to deal with any more of that. Um, that's very doubtful because there are, in fact, incredibly prosaic reasons why the Manchus never attacked Japan. Um, but nevertheless, that's the death of, of, of Coxinger's mum. Um, and uh, and the beginning of his resistance. And so for the next 10 years, he is running uh, a guerrilla war um, from the edges of China. Remember, the sea is the power base of the Zhang family. And remember that the Manchus are a, a bunch of horsemen. Um, anyone who might have been on the Manchu side who was, um, would not have been a good sailor. And anyone who was a good sailor was probably still with the Zhang family. There's still a fortune to be made trading with the Dutch and with the English and with the Portuguese and 
sailing down to Southeast Asia. Uh, and so one doesn't need to touch the coast of China a whole lot to, to continue managing this network. And so throughout the 1640s and 1650s, uh, Coxinger is you know, building up his money, building up troops, and eventually is back in China, leading an assault on Nanjing. Uh, Nanjing, of course, being the uh, previously being the Chinese capital um, in, in the Ming Dynasty, Beijing had become the capital, but Nanjing is a very important um, provincial city. So he's leading this army um, up the river, uh, up the river Yangtze, and the Yangtze is a very, very wide river. And so the Chinese had uh, the Manchus and their Chinese collaborators knew they had to defend against a marine assault. This wasn't necessarily going to be a, an army marching along the side. This is really a riverborne assault on a river that is miles wide so you can get a lot of ships in it and so uh, they built a series of barrages a series of iron chains across the river um, and floating fortresses like little oil rigs with guns on them and that was called the boiling river dragon um, and so the coxingers advance in 1656 up the river yangtze on nanjing uh, was basically this this massive fight against the boiling river dragon, which involved him sending divers in, probably Indian divers. He seems to have had a bunch of um, uh, like pearl divers from India who were particularly good at kind of getting under these floating fortresses and, and you know blowing stuff up. And so, uh, yeah, the, the boiling river dragon is one of those weird kind of moments in Chinese history where you think that can't be a thing. That's not. Oh, it's a thing. Oh, it is a thing. Okay. Um, and that's one of many moments when, you know, reading um, that there's a book called The Veritable Record of the Former Prince, which is the diary of Coxinger's private secretary, uh, which has survived. Um, and so there's a whole chapter about the boiling river dragon. And, and, you know, the amount of time I spent in the dictionary going, what does that actually mean? You know, is, because you never know with this lot, it could be a dragon. But no, it is, in fact, a, a series of fortresses linked by these barrages, which they had to fight their way up on the river. And they made it to, to, uh, to uh, Nanjing, um, but they weren't really ready for taking it over. Um, at, after, they, after they retreated, and they did have to retreat, and they went off to Taiwan, um, they started to intercept correspondence and hear stories back from Nanjing that suggested that if they'd have just pushed a little bit more, Nanjing would have flipped over back to their side in much the same way that it had flipped over uh, when the Manchus arrived. And that it might have started this kind of momentum that, that, that brought the Ming back. You know, 1656 is already 12 years after the Manchu invasion. And you get this sense with Coxinger's generation that there's a very limited time before Chinese people forget what Ming means, before they've grown up knowing nothing but Manchus, and they figure, well, we might as well just stay the way things are. And so the, the assault on the Boiling River Dragon was a, a, a pivotal moment. It was one of those John Barr hinges where, you know, if they just managed it a little bit more, uh, you know, maybe things would have been different. Uh, but they didn't. And uh, by the time they found out that they had more support than they realized in the hinterland, uh, they were already pulling back uh, um, and, and running for Taiwan, where they knew the Manchus or they hoped the Manchus wouldn't follow them. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So... How do the Manchus fight back? They're not just going to take this lying down, are they? They're not going to take it lying down. But remember, they are horsemen. They are basically afraid of the sea. Yeah. Um, and they, they really want nothing to do with the sea. They wish the sea would just leave them alone. And their enemy is this guy who, much like Vikings, 
lives on offshore islands. You know, the, the, these little enclaves just a few miles offshore are unassailable. Um, and so they have a very drastic measure to deal with it. Uh, they declare a wall around the sea. They basically interdict 30 miles of coast. And when I say 30 miles, I mean from the coast inland by 30 miles along thousands of miles of coastland. They say not a living thing in this area. They, they burn all the villages. They throw all the people out. They kill all the livestock. Uh, they destroy all the crops. And they make the 30-mile zone all along the coast of China. <laughs> Those of you who can't see the look on Zach's face while I'm telling the story. <laughs> It's a big solution. It's one of those big picture solutions. Um, so this 30-mile zone along the coast of China for years is like no man's land. I mean, literally a burned wasteland, like no man's land. Um, to the extent that uh, if someone is caught with fish, if someone is caught with seaweed, they are immediately a suspect in the resistance because you're not supposed to be able to get these products. And the whole idea... Uh, of this um, coastal interdiction was to starve Coxinger out, was to make it impossible for his people to develop any contacts or trade or, or supplies um, from the coast. I mean, talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face. <laughs> well, the, see, the Manchus is someone else's nose. <laughs> they it's, don't care they don't care about the coast it's the south coast of china is worth nothing to them they just want the pirates to go away uh, as far as they're concerned i mean they, they don't regard them as resistance they just regard them as criminals at this point so so for, for the manchus this kind of draconian decision might seem like a willful act of self-destruction but the manchus are not destroying themselves they are ruining some other guy's land which they never wanted anyway how does this go down with people? Because, <laughs> uh, you know, so you, you spent your entire life living by the, the coast. Your ancestors have lived on the coast. Everything yeah. you know is tied up with that. Yeah. And then we're going to come in. We're going to burn your houses down. We're going to slaughter your livestock. and we're going to make you move 30 miles inland to another yeah. place. Surely that, that cause, along thousands of miles of coastline, surely yeah. that causes resentment. A little bit. Well, here's the thing with the Manchus, is when they arrived, they said everything's going to be just the same as it was before. Um, and then, of course, they, they pull a stunt like this, and it does generate resentment. And you do get people defecting over to Coxinger's side. You get people who've got a choice. I can, I can get in that boat that's waiting for me offshore and join the Ming resistance, or I can follow these guys with swords who are going to make me move to, you know, Chipping Ongar or somewhere even worse, uh, the Chinese equivalent, and, and, and start up a new life with, with nothing you know, where I'm probably going to end up as a beggar. Well, I don't like the sound of it. I mean, the Manchus were very, very big on moving entire communities to places where they, you know, didn't belong. Uh, they didn't care about that kind of thing. So, so some of these decisions did kind of allow the Manchus to sort of decloak, to reveal just how little regard they placed on their people, on the people that they'd conquered. Um, ironically, the thing that really pissed people off with the Manchus was the haircut. <laughs> Because the, man, because the Manchus, when they, when they showed up, they said, everything's going to be exactly the same. I mean, it'll, you know, China will still be China. There's, you, know, you still have chairs. You still have chopsticks. You know, you'll still have you know, roast pork. Everything's going to be fine. Oh, but we want you all to have a Manchu haircut. And the Manchu haircut you know, is, will be very familiar to you from the 19th century because it was still in use. You shave the front of a man's head right back to his ears. So you create this artificial male pattern boldness at the front. And you have this long, long queue at the back. It's this kind of Fu Manchu look. And the Manchus did that because the back end of a horse was something they were very keen on. Uh, and, and you kind of, you, you, you end up resembling one with this kind of horse's tail on your head. But also it was a similar... <laughs> this isn't part of your culture. It's like, uh, yeah, you can still have your roast pork and everything else, but I want you to turn your head into a horse's ass. Exactly. And... The amount of resistance there was to this was incredible. There were people who were just like shrugging their shoulders going, yeah, whatever, Manchu's in charge. You want me to cut my hair? Fuck you. Yeah, and so, this is the same concept as Peter the Great pinning people down in Russia and cutting their beards off, isn't it? 
it's very similar to that because it's the same thing because you're you're asking someone to 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 invade their personal space at this point. Yeah. You're literally asking you you know you're not just invading their country. You're taking over their personal life now and how they look when they when they look in the mirror. And and, and this was something that people really couldn't go with because it's ridiculous haircut. Let's face it, you do look like a nutter uh, when you have that kind of hair. Um, and uh, it is a symbol of slavery to the Manchus. So the Chinese were not very keen on that. And a whole bunch of people uh, shaved their entire heads because and said oh no we're monks now uh which was a way of kind of getting around it and this is actually an issue uh i don't know if you've seen the last samurai um but uh, uh ken watanabe in the last samurai he has his head entirely shaved yeah and, and, and the reason for that is is if he had a proper samurai haircut he would look like a nutter um and so you know shaving one's head completely allows you to kind of go with the bald is awesome look rather than having you know two haircuts both of them bad um and so and that's one of the ways uh that there was a kind of resistance among the manchus as well so so yes burning someone's village killing all their livestock making them move or making them get a haircut both of these things uh were, were, were you know just, just some of the elements i mean as time went by the manchus became incredibly paranoid about the ming resistance and would have these vast censorship clampdowns trying to stop people from even using the term sun and moon in the same sentence because you put sun and moon together it makes ming um so there was you know very very draconian uh attempt to kind of keep this occupation regime going uh but i think the the wall around the sea was the was the first real inkling of the level of uh response the manchus were prepared to articulate um to finally put down any resistance so why does coxing use taiwan as a base if the the, the ming uh, sorry if the manchus are, are trying to kind of suffocate him because taiwan's out of it so what why is that well, better well precisely taiwan is just enough out of it um if you are an accomplished seaman you can get to taiwan um but it was just far enough across the taiwan strait to really stop any any real um naval response for decades in fact, when Taiwan did eventually, eventually fall to the Manchus, it fell to a defector from uh, Coxinger's own regime, uh, who himself was uh, an admiral. So, you know, so um, a guy called Shilang. Um, so uh, unless you were basically one of his specialist group, you had no chance of crossing the Taiwan Strait in any meaningful military way. And so uh, the, the, the forts closer to the shore, like Natsu and Kwamoi, they were not quite within range of enemy cannon, shall we say, but certainly um, something that a, a, an amphibious assault could get to, um, whereas Taiwan was just far enough away uh, and, and big as well. I mean, let's not forget, it's, it, today there's 25 million people living there. So if you are, you know, uh, a few thousand uh, rebels and their families, there is... Uh, at least the potential of setting up farms, which he tried to do. He, he, he said to everyone, listen, no, we are going to go back. We are going to try and retake the mainland. But at the moment, our main consideration is growing food. So everyone, get a bit of land, farm it, try and create supplies. So Taiwan was a large enough and distance, distant enough um, uh, redoubt um, for to, to, to make a, a generation-long resistance program uh, a reasonable thing. You know, we, we, we'd failed in our assault on Nanjing. It's going to take us years to regroup. We'd better do it somewhere that's solid. Unfortunately, the Dutch are already there. You know, the, the, the Dutch East India Company base is at Fort Zeelandia. And so when, they, uh, when the Chinese show up, uh, they have to throw the Dutch out. Surely, surely the Dutch East India Company can just squash this, right? Well, you would think that, wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, there's a the, the man in charge uh, on uh, on Taiwan is a man called Frederick Koyet, who's not actually Dutch at all. He's Swedish, um, and he's writing these letters back to uh, to Batavia uh, in in what is now Java, um, and saying, "Listen." The Chinese are going to come. I'm telling you that when this Coxinger thing kicks off, he's going to retreat to Taiwan. We really need to do something about this. And the council in Batavia is saying this Koya is a dick. He has no idea that the, the wars in China are not our problem. There is not going to be any issue to deal with at all. 
And eventually, um, the council at Batavia sends a man called Herman Klenk, which is a fantastic name. Uh, and they send him off in a couple of ships uh, to Taiwan uh, with instructions to relieve Coyette of his command because Coyette is a delusional, paranoid idiot. And when Klenk's ships arrive, Fort Zelandia is under siege from thousands of Chinese troops and the harbour is crawling with Chinese ships and there is this massive battle going on. And Klenk actually marches ashore with this order saying, you're an idiot, it's never going to happen, while it's actually happening. And Koyet says, so you're here to relieve me of my command. Fantastic. Well, I'll be off then. I'm just going to make my way out through these imaginary fucking Chinese ships, you absolute dick. <laughs> and, and in fact, Frederick Koyet, we have to thank for a book called Neglected Formosa, which is his personal diary of how all this happened. And, and, and so the fact that his own company didn't believe him and sent someone to relieve him of his command in the middle of the battle um, is something that he's entertainingly animated about. Uh, so it's just a fantastic book about just, you know, just how irritating uh, the Dutch in East India Company was when it, when it came to not believing him until it was way, way, way till late. And in fact, uh, Koyet's um, problems continued long after. After Coxinger um, accepted the Dutch to surrender and let the Dutch leave, or well, most of the Dutch leave, uh, he kept most of their women for himself, um, uh, Koyet went home to Batavia, where they actually did threaten to execute him for dereliction of duty until he pointed out that he'd been doing his job and it was the council at Batavia that hadn't done theirs. I'm, I'm just speechless. This is why I love these episodes. The, the shithousery, as Alex would say, that goes on. <laughs> this image of... So, so I'm just imagining this whole siege that's going on that you're yeah. now going to have to deal with yourself. Good luck with that. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that the siege does come to an end. Yes. What happens? What causes it to come to an end? And you mentioned about the women. What happens to them? Well, um, so the thing about the sieges is that uh, in Chinese history, there is this huge victim narrative about China, particularly in the 19th century, being victimized by all these you know, horrible European powers. The fact is, is that the battle of Fort Zelandia, the siege of Fort Zelandia between Coxinger's people and the Dutch was an encounter between a Chinese army and a European uh, power and the Chinese won, uh, which uh, is, is one of those, you know, which, which makes it a very interesting moment in history anyway. Um, Fort Zelandia, which is this incredible ziggurat, it's not shaped like a fort, it's got this very weird kind of step pyramid shape and it's still there today. Um, uh, was uh, one of these kind of modern artillery fort style forts. You know, it, it's something that's very common in Napoleonic uh, uh, Europe, but it's quite quite rare thing to see in, in the Far East. Um, and uh, it was big enough to have a village inside it. So there was, you know, there were wells and there was, you know, enough food and supplies for quite a long siege, but it was completely surrounded by the Chinese and there's no help coming from the Dutch East India Company. I mean, Koyet's account when he sees the flags of Dutch ships on the horizons, he thinks, I'm saved, I'm saved. How many ships have they sent? Oh, two. Right. I hope it's not Herman Klenk aboard because there's going to be ructions. Um, so everything's fine. The trouble is, is that as, as so often happens, you know, no military site is designed with perfect strategic conditions. And in the case of Fort Zelandia, there was a little mini fort on a nearby hill called Utrecht. Um, and the reason that fort and the reason that fort was there uh, was because someone had worked out that the ground was high enough that if you had that high ground, you could actually shoot down into Fort Zelandia. And the Chinese, however, hadn't worked this out. However, um, as the siege wore on, uh, more and more of the Dutch East India Company personnel were getting pissed off with the way things were looking, particularly the mercenaries. Because when we say Dutch East India Company, the company may well be Dutch, but you know, Fred, Frederick Coyer is Swedish. Um, there were French people in the, in the, under his command. There were Germans under his command. There may well have been English people under his command as well. Um, and, a, and a German called Hans-Jürgen Radis says, fuck this, and defects to the Chinese. 
he just runs out of, uh, and he wasn't the only one, um, uh, but, but Coyette's own diary was particularly, and it got a particular amount of antipathy for Hans Jürgen Radis, because when he turns up with the Chinese, the Chinese go, so, you know, anything you can help us with on this whole siege thing? And he goes, oh, yeah, see that fort over there? If you took that, you could shoot down into the castle. And they're like, oh, shit, we should have thought of that. So suddenly the Chinese transfer all of their firepower and all of their assault onto this tiny little tin pot like shit house at the top of a hill, blow the shit out of it. And, and, and then they can put their artillery on the top and they can fire down into Fort Zelandia and it's all over. And so, so, so Frederick Coyette is saying, you know, not only have I been let down by the Dutch East India Company, the Germans have fucked me over as well. Insanity. Yeah. Um, so yes. What was the other question? Sorry. Uh, oh, what happened to the women? Ah, right. Yeah. So, did you just you glossed past this a minute ago? But tell us yeah. more. So um, there were a number of women of Fort Zelandia who were um, taken by the Chinese and given by Coxinger uh, uh, to his men. Um, in fact, there's there's one girl who was the daughter. There's a man called Antonius Hambrook who was the, the, the chaplain at Fort Zelandia, and they used him as a, um, as a go-between during the siege. And Coxinger said to him, you go in and you secure a siege right now, or I'll, I'll fucking kill you. And Hambrook actually went back out to Coxinger to tell him that um, the, the Dutch would not be surrendering, and he was executed. Um, and this became a, a great cause celeb in uh, in Holland. And there's a play called Antonius Hambrook about Hambrook, you know, negotiating with the Chinese and, and the fact that he is noble enough to go back to the Chinese, even though he knows he's going back to die. And his daughter was in the castle and supposedly became uh, Coxinger's concubine. The weird thing, though, about this is that um, a couple of years later, um, as the Jung regime settled down on Taiwan and, and there was a, a degree of detente between the Dutch and the, um, and the Chinese. Uh, there was a kind of prisoner exchange. And, 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 and so some of the hostages who had been taken by the Chinese were, were handed back to the Dutch. Um, and a lot of the women refused to go. Uh, a number of the Dutch women said, I have never been so well treated as I have been by my new Chinese husband. I'm fucking staying. And so there was a, uh, a group, I don't know how many there were, but it was a significant enough mon a number um, for, I think, for Coit himself in neglected Formosa to say the caresses they received from their Chinese husbands made them never want to return to the arms of a Dutchman. And so um, a number of these women did actually stay with the Zhang regime and, and, and never went back to Holland. Mad. I like it. What happened to Coxinger after his victory? Well... Uh, it didn't go well, um, sadly, um, because like him. well, yes, that, that's the problem. In fact, there, there, there are one of the problems with history is we want to impose uh, a mode of implotment. We want to tell a story with a beginning and a middle and an end. And the trouble with Coxinger's story is it's ultimately a tragedy, um, which may be another reason why he's not the most famous man in Chinese history, um, because he's already showing the signs at this point of going a little bit loopy um there are hints in the narrative that he's already quite raving and shouty by this point that he has been this noble figure and he's still discussed as a noble figure in chinese sources but there are asides in some of the records particularly from the jesuits uh who were around and and from some of uh and some of the dutch that he was becoming incredibly vindictive uh, towards not not just his enemies but his own people there are stories of people being thrown in the sea for very minor infractions there are stories of him going absolutely mental and smashing up temples and 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 all kinds of stuff there was a prophecy actually that he would die in a place called the city of bricks um, and when he took over Fort Provincia, which was the uh, the Dutch um, headquarters in Tainan, someone said, oh, yeah, by the way, we call this the city of bricks. <laughs> How about that? Bit of a coincidence. And Coxing is like, oh, for fuck's sake. Um, so um, within a very short time of him defeating the Dutch and casting them out, he became terribly ill. Um, he got uh, what's, what they say is malaria uh, and died raving. However, uh, there are, there's also a suggestion that for the last 10 years of his life, he'd been increasingly suffering from the effects of syphilis. 
because uh, there's a Dutch doctor who was sent to treat him in 1654 for boils on his arms. Um, and Coxinger said, oh, yeah, I've got seawater on him or something. I don't know what that's about. And the Dutch doctor's like, no, that's what happens. That's the first sign of syphilis is that these kind of lesions that you get. And if that's the case, and late stages lesions on your face, but also possible madness, it may well be that what we're looking at from two years before the assault on the boiling river dragon to the end of his life and just after the um, siege of Fort Zealandia is an ever-growing susceptibility to the effects of tertiary stage syphilis which is driving him mental um so uh the other thing is is that while uh, shortly after the fall of uh, Fort Zealandia uh he hears that um, the emperor in Beijing has had enough of waiting for Nicholas Iquan to convince his son to change sides and had him executed along with several of Coxinger's brothers. But also the last uh, pretender, the last uh, Ming pretender uh, is a man calling himself the Yongli emperor. And, he, and he's been heading, and, and Coxinger's never met this guy and he, he's heading south all the time. He's going, uh, but not southwest towards Taiwan. He's setting, uh, sorry, not southeast towards Taiwan. He's heading southwest all the time. Southwest, west, west. Ends up in Burma, where he's captured and brought back uh, to the to the local governor, uh, and um, he's executed um, along with his son, uh, his fourteen year old son, uh, Zushuan Constantine, because the Jesuits have been working on the pretender and had convinced him that maybe a Christian China could attract uh, the attention of the Pope and a crusade to save the Ming. Um, so they, they'd even given um, the, the heir apparent a, a Christian name. And they were both killed. And the news of their death, the, the news that the last Ming uh, heir had, had been killed, reached Coxinger shortly after the siege of Fort Zealandia. And he was raving and shouting and smashing up the ancestral tablets and smashing up the temple and then died. Uh, saying, how can I face my emperor in the afterlife without having achieved my aims? Uh, supposedly his last words. Um, and so, you know, after that, um, uh, the uh, his family, the Jung family, still, oh, yeah, and I forgot the other thing as well. The other thing that really tipped him over the edge was shortly after the, forge of, uh, the, the siege of Fort Zealandia, one of the wet nurses of one of Coxinger's kids is pregnant. And he's like, that's a bit weird. Who's, who's the father? She goes, well, funnily, funny story. It's your son. Uh, and it turns out that his son, his eldest son, Jung Jing, is a bit of chip off the old Nicholas Iquan block and has been banging his stepmother. Oh, um, no. <laughs> and because that's the funny thing about the Cox, about the Jung family is that you basically get Nicholas Iquan and then his son is Coxinger and then Coxinger's son is another Nicholas Iquan and, and his son is another Coxinger. You, you kind of get this kind of real uh, sort of switching of, of characters in the family uh, between these two extremes. So Coxinger, one of the, one of his last things, you know, he orders for his son to be executed. He orders for the, uh, for the wet nurse to be executed because this is incest in the eyes of Confucian law. He orders for his wife to be executed for not stopping this before it happened. And he just loses it completely. And in fact, none of these executions actually take place because That's very, very fortunately <laughs> for everybody, uh, including a Jesuit who tried to stop all this and was then told that he would be executed too. Um, uh, you know, he, he died before any of these orders could be carried out. Wow. <laughs> Very rare that both of us are just stupefied by a tale like this. And it's all true. We've had it, it all. Is. Boiling river dragons, eyes of cats, black skinned devils, pirate kings of Taiwan. Incest. Jonathan, this is incest. Let's not forget <laughs> the incest. Classic yeah. history hack. Um Classic history hack storytelling, I hasten to add. Not, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no insinuations going on there. <laughs> Nobody at history hack is related to anyone else at history hack, just to confirm. Jonathan, this has just been epic. So, Cogzinger, the fall of the Ming dynasty, it's been out a while, has it? It's been out for a good 18 years, yes. Okay, so your a first while. Baby, yeah. Your first book, yeah, yeah, it's my first real history book, yeah. Uh, and um, I've always wanted to kind of go back to it as well. Um, uh, and, and in fact, I, I, I did go back to it with Christ Samurai, which, is, which, which happened at the same time. I'll tell you about that another time. Um, but the thing is, is that 
because the Jung family stays on Taiwan after Koxinga is gone, um, there's this whole regime, there's this whole kind of little independent regime on Taiwan run by his son and his grandsons uh, for the next 20 years. And it's only when the Manchus have finally built up uh, a navy that can take them out that they attack Taiwan and, and bring down the Jung regime. And that is why Taiwan is part of China, because until that point, it was this kind of distant place uh, regarded even by the Manchu emperors as little better than a ball of mud. Uh, and that's a quote, by the way, that's not me slagging off Taiwan. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, Taiwan is brought into the Chinese, you know, uh, um, worldview into the Chinese world by the fact that it is, you know, Koxinger's base. Um, and by the fact that it's this very, very handy redoubt, if China, if mainland China falls to your enemies, you can always sneak off there and hide out for a bit. Not that I'm drawing a modern parallel or anything. And so, and so there's lots... Not. And so there's lots of, you know, stories about the Zhang regime after, uh, after the time of Koxinger, um, because uh, he's such a hero to the Chinese, to the extent that they would ultimately make him a god, and so did the Japanese. So you get, the, the, so the Manchus make, they, they canonize him as a paragon of loyalty, because even though he opposed them, he was so doggedly loyal that they, they made a big thing about that. And the, and the Japanese, of course, see him as this excuse to talk about Taiwan as part of Japan. So they immediately um, start, uh, you know, singing his praises as well. And so, you know, the 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 kind of the aftermath of the Zhang regime um, on um, Taiwan is is something that kind of reverberated for for, for for many decades afterwards, and and possibly even centuries, because the the secret societies that would eventually bring down the Manchus would tell this story among themselves, which is highly unlikely, but nevertheless worth repeating for funsies, that at the fall of the Zhang regime in Taiwan, a group of people gathered and said, let's scatter to the winds and start these secret societies and bring back the Ming from the very, very you know, ground up, from the basement up. Um, and this is a story that became told and retold among the triads and the martial arts societies all around South China, um, who ultimately would form some of the basis of the, of the revolution that would topple the Manchus in uh, 1911, 1912. If people haven't been convinced to go and buy your book <laughs> off of this and your other all books, of your books, yeah, <laughs> there's no bloody hope for people, frankly. It's been just incredible. Come back and do more, please. You please. know him. He's already got his next two appearances lined up and what he wants to talk about. So <laughs> we know how Jonathan's mind works. Yeah, I've, I've got some ideas. I won't, I won't tell them to you on the record, though. I'll, I'll talk to you off the record and you can decide which one you like the sound of. Well, leave people hanging, but you will yeah. be back. Jonathan, thank you so much. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.